Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Baski Mukherjee. She's passionate about making technology more inclusive and accessible. She brings over 20 years of experience in product and technology. She is the founder of PM Dojo, a diverse learning community with a 10-week product accelerator program that gives people real-world skills and experience to break through or transition into a product role. Baski is also a mom and a wife currently living in Vancouver, Canada, and enjoys the precious little moments of motherhood, life, and work. Hi Baski, welcome to our podcast. Hi Divya, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Same here. So let's get started. So you had a very different childhood. So let's start there. So how was your childhood and what makes it so unique? I would say it was a unconventional childhood. uh at least in my uh books of course right uh, i think every everyone looks at it differently but just to give you a little bit of a perspective i grew up in india um my parents uh, speak different languages yes they do speak english but they speak different languages they eat very different foods uh culture food habits everything is very different i also grew up uh, in the part of india that has matriarchal society and so shillong northeastern part of india it's one of those very few places is in India that has a matriarchal society contrary to what typically you would find in India Shillong was also a place where you had people pretty much from all over India come for work so growing up I had friends who looked very different half of them didn't even look like the typical how Indians look because the ethnic community back there they have a very interesting mix of um, you know all these different racial kind of mixes right from mongoloids to dravidians to all of this we had different foods so lunches were different kinds of smells and all of that and it was really really interesting growing up because i often would find that when we would go to visit our grandparents what would you call mainland india if i can just kind of draw that analogy i would be very much in a culture shock because it was completely being transplanted from where i grew up and i was growing up and you know very very heterogeneous to something that was very homogeneous so that was one part that was very different um i also went to a convent you know we had these uh, irish nuns who taught us our teachers and it was very interesting because they often embraced uh, and taught us to kind of embrace uh, you know diversity and uh we didn't know the word of course diversity back then but how we were different uh you know why we shouldn't be making fun or sitting in a different place if we did find one of our friends bring lunch that kind of didn't appeal to our noses right or how should we really embrace how we all thought differently um how we were preparing ourselves to be these captains and leaders of the world and as a kid you know launching social impact campaigns for orphanages and old age homes or uh closing up the city zoo i mean these were all the things that i kind of grew up with and i guess that kind of shaped how i look the world um and my perspective on it my parents uh, career choice was also very very different and unique so rather than you know your typical business lawyer engineer both of my parents are earth scientists and when i look at all of the pictures uh, from the university um my mom was the only woman in her class so i guess a lot of these things kind of influenced me uh into who i've become as a person and uh, so yeah that was kind of unique i would say in in growing up uh and what's kind of shaped me so far so you had mentioned as a child you wanted to be a nun <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> you kind of diverted from that path so why did you want to be a nun and what changed what brought you here 
yeah, <laughs> what I'm doing is nothing like a nun. Well, I, I would think so. So yes, I wanted to be a nun. You know, I spent a good amount of my days kind of working and learning with all of our amazing, amazing, loving nuns. They were strict, but they were nothing like what you see in the movies, right? They were very, very exceptionally kind of amazing. And when I would see how much they cared for all of us or how they helped us kind of learn a lot of the things that today I know as self-empathy, empathy for others and trying to do good for others before thinking about yourself. I mean, these were some of the things that it came very naturally, I think, growing up, just seeing all of the nuns and the fact that they would never lose their patience. You know, we were kind of naughty, right? Like little kids in a, in a girl's school. And how, I think a lot of those things were things that I wish I could do you know, growing up. And for me, because I spent so much time in the school, I did my extracurricular activities with them. I would sign up to this club and that club just so that I would be able to spend a lot of time with them. It almost became like they were the second part of the family. Um, you know, I still remember, I think I was in grade two or something, and my eyes had gotten a little bit red. Before my parents noticed it, one of the nuns noticed it, one of our sisters noticed it. And they talked with my parents and we went to the eye doctor and we found that I was kind of putting too much stress. And when I would color and paint, I was kind of looking at it too much, very closely and that somehow affected. I mean, there was so much of the fact that they would notice without you having to do it and they would be doing it for no material benefit for them was something that I kind of gravitated towards. And so that was my fascination with the nuns. Of course, growing up when I knew what all I had to give, <laughs> if I had to pursue that in my teenage years, perhaps that's what deterred. But uh, even now, I, I try, I try my hardest to bring in some of those elements that I saw in, the, in our sisters and in our nuns when I work, whether it is with team, uh, I desperately strive to bring those aspects as a mom, even though I fail horribly. Uh, I think it's a lot harder when you have to kind of, I think, embrace a lot of the, um, you know, challenges when a toddler or a little kid kind of brings on to you patience. So I think that those were some of the things that I would say I bring to my current day to day job and work these days. So how did PM Dojo come about? PM Dojo was something that I started last year. And there were a few things that kind of came into play for me to formally start something uh, like PM Dojo. So I was getting really frustrated with a few things uh, for a very, very, very long time. So, you know, over the course, so I've been in tech for 20 years and I've often been labeled with an adjective, which I guess a lot of women have been. Uh, so it could be the only person of color in the executive room, or it was the only woman in this room or something like that, right? And it was fine that, you know, in the beginning it was like, yeah, sure, I'm different. My name is different anyway, so fine, this is also different. But then I really started getting frustrated because any kind of conversations in tech around solving the diversity problem came down to the fact that companies had to hire more diverse talent. And as I started looking into all of this, I also realized that in order to hire more, we also have to do a lot of work to make sure that people from all of these diverse communities feel encouraged that they even apply because we were not seeing that many applications from diverse communities. 
The second thing was how do we define diversity? So if you look at any of the stats, most of them start with 60% white or 70% men. And we talk about gender and race and diversity is a lot more than just gender and race. They're, these two are big parts of it, but there are lots, a lot of different things, you know, learning styles, neurodiversity, uh, body type, age, uh, walks of life, all of these different things. And then I was also very frustrated with the business of education. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was around a lot of theory, not a lot of practical. And so people kind of encounter chicken and egg problem if they're looking to break into tech, uh, transition into tech. And I wanted to kind of challenge the status quo for all of these different things and try my best to see if I could do something to make an impact. And that's why PM Dojo started. Uh, so the mission of PM Dojo is very much to make tech more inclusive and accessible. Um, and that's what we are trying to do over the last, I would say, a year. So before PM Dojo, so you had a regular corporate job, um, extremely successful at what you were doing. What made you give it all up? So a few things. In 2019, my life came to a halt. So I didn't realize a lot of the things that was happening. What I was seeing and noticing about me was the fact that I had become extremely emotional uh, to the point that uh, even a barista could just ask me how my day was and I would end up crying. Um, I hadn't slept for two years. Um, so I just couldn't sleep. So insomnia, I couldn't eat, I wouldn't eat, I didn't have any appetite. I was losing my temper. Um, and my husband, of course, my four year old back then, uh, for no rhyme or reason, I didn't want to return back home. Um, I would sit down at a cafe near our place after work would get over um, and try to figure out if my son was out of the house uh, in the evening just so that, and that was the opportunity, the window that I was looking for to reach home. So I didn't want to be with family. Um, and I was getting very irritable, like very overwhelmed. I couldn't walk. Um, I would get very tired. And so these were some of the things that I was, I, I was noticing, but of course I didn't want to do anything about it just for the fear that perhaps something uh, might come up, uh, or maybe I was kind of struggling um, to just accept that I needed help and something was not right. Um, and, you know, things were going on like this for, for a couple of months, I would say more than a couple of months. And um, one evening, my four-year-old, when I lost my temper at, uh, at him for no rhyme or reason, he was just being a four-year-old, um, he just asked me a very simple question. And his question was, mom, have you started loving me less because I have a scar in my chest? So he's gone through open heart surgeries and he has a scar and he internalized my behavior as to something that it was not his fault. And he internalized it as a fact that because he has a scar, I love him less compared to, let's say, the other moms. I think his question was kind of instrumental in forcing me for the first time in many, many, many years to kind of just pause and realize that I perhaps crossed the line and I needed to do something. Um, and so that's when I went, you know, I, I still didn't do anything. Uh, but then one day around, I think that same week, um, my BP just kind of rose over the charts to borderline high. And 
physically I felt really bad enough that I attempted to go to a pharmacy um, and just check my blood pressure. And that's when I kind of saw those numbers that were very crazy that you see in all of these TV shows. And I made an appointment with my GP and my GP basically gave me two choices. You know, if you want to live, then you got to kind of take stock and need to slow down and you need help. And if you want to kind of pass out in a parking lot and not be there for your son, then you can continue the way you are. And at that point, you know, I decided that, okay, I crossed the line. I did what I had to, stepped down from the role, went on a leave with a lot of hesitation, shame and guilt and all of those things. I decided to do therapy, did that, um, got better um, and then decided that I would not return back for a few reasons. One, uh, I think that trauma is still there a little bit, <laughs> you know, of what it can be. I, I always wanted to do things within the realm of what I'm doing right now. Um, and have that freedom. And I guess I've used that opportunity of what happened with me, unfortunately, to kind of do something that I'm deeply, deeply, deeply passionate about without forcing myself to be like, okay, I need to earn this much money. Um, and I'm grateful that I have a husband who actually understands that piece. And your model is very unique as well, right? The way you guys train and it's really practical knowledge and experience over just theoretical knowledge. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, we were talking about it the other day as well, right? The chicken and egg problem, right? And so if you think about people who are looking to advance their career or grow their career in tech, especially in the product realm. So this could be product design, product management, you know, you can do all of these courses, you can do as many case studies that you want, it still gives you a very theoretical understanding. And unfortunately, the real world is far away from theory, and far away from all of the sanitized version of whatever the books teach us, right? Uh, why? Because it has us, the people, you know, who are very complex creatures, right? In order to kind of, again, make tech inclusive and encourage people who never thought that they would have the confidence to even apply and break into product and tech, this is what, you know, our model is. Our model is that you, we mimic the real world as much as possible. You get to work and collaborate um, as real kind of diverse teams with people that you've never met. You get to solve a real problem, uncover the problem. You do everything that you have to do that real PMs and designers do in the real world. And in 10 weeks, while you're learning, receiving mentorship uh, from industry leaders who really are working with you, not as transactional mentors, but allies and advocates, in 10 weeks, you launch a live product, like a real live product, working product that has users and data. And so that next time you have to, uh, you're trying for a role, whether it's internal promotion or a role at a ne next company, you're not just uh, challenged with talking about your transferable skills, you can actually demo them a live product with real users. And it's really, really powerful. So really that confidence of having done the role before um, you are actually applying for a role is what we do at PM Dojo. And do you see any significant advantage in terms of placements that these people have after doing your program? Yes, uh, we right now, even though I, I you know, when, when people kind of ask me, I say we're not a placement agency. <laughs> and no, I do not guarantee you roles. I mean, these days, even hiring managers cannot guarantee, right? <laughs> roles, you know, role offers are getting rescinded last minute. But we do have a 90% placement rate. 
So for all the people who come into our program, uh, you know, whether someone who's never done, you know, never worked in tech, whether they come from nutrition to social work, from engineering, from marketing sales, we've had people who have gotten multiple offers, who have been able to pitch and negotiate a, a, a higher role with a higher salary in their current org, to people who've actually gone and pitched themselves into complete different new companies and being able to um, get a role in product so it's been that's pretty amazing congratulations that's that's Thank a you. pretty big number 90 yeah. is amazing so what got you into technology like were there people who were influential in you choosing this field yes so i think a part of it is family uh, and just cultural upbringing so i grew up in india of course you know so it was really important to be financially secure in a career that pays well back then I mean, i'm sure things have changed now but back then for my parents to kind of really encourage me that put that put that thinking process and that belief if i needed to be successful if i needed to live comfortably if i needed to make sure that my family was taken care of i needed to be in a career that actually pays well and is secure. And of course, we talked about um, engineering, computer engineering, not any other engineering, not civil engineering, not electrical computer engineering. And we talked a lot about medicine. Um, so I've, I've got a lot of my uncles and uh, from the, my maternal side, my cousins who are into medicine. Some, my, my maternal uncle was one of world renowned uh, orthopedic surgeon as well in the UK. So a lot of, lot of doctors. We talked about lawyers. Uh, my granddad maternal side is from the law. We kind of didn't talk a lot about business or entrepreneurship because that is not where, it's not for the intellectuals. <laughs> it's silly, but back then. And so, of course, there was a lot of kind of, I think, encouragement to go towards computer science. One thing that I also remember and my parents, my mom and dad will always kind of remind me a lot of the times was that somehow I never liked playing with dolls and or stuffies. Um, and so in my birthdays, I would get, of course, a lot of stuffies and this and that, and they would kind of be there nicely arranged. You know, I loved to keep my room in a very clean way, very much different than what a typical three-year-old or a four-year-old would do. But I would love to get like cars or these kind of things. And then I would bring in a screwdriver, open it up and then put it back again. And so these were some of the things that I just kind of did. Don't know why. Um, and uh, in our school, what happened very, very strangely was that in grade two, um, they started a computer club. Um, and so no other school in the city had that, but they started a computer club. And I was the only one who signed up and I started doing that and I just loved it. And so then I signed up for some more computer programs and things and I started kind of mucking around and I would just love it. And I started building my own thing. You know, so I built a neighborhood library with like 500 book catalog with my friends. And that was in, when I was eight years old. Yes, hard coded a lot of things, <laughs> but did that. And then a couple of years later, I automated our school's cafeteria kind of ordering system without kind of thinking much, right? And I did all of that and I just loved it. Um, and then I ended up getting this, some sort of phobia around dissecting um, these little worms that you have to dissect in biology. And so I left biology um, and took full on computers. So again, I think the notion of pursuing medicine kind of went away with that. Um, and so then I was left with all of these other things. Parents, they were very encouraging to kind of, 
talk about all of these stories about all of these people from technology fields, whether it was Bill Gates, Silicon Valley. We used to talk a lot about Silicon Valley and I have no idea why. Like my parents are not from tech, but we used to talk. I used to read. I used to just love reading uh, in our library about all of these different personalities and these leaders. And I wanted to go to Silicon Valley from the time I was 10 or 12 years old. Like I wanted to go there. Just, I didn't know what I would do, but I wanted to go there. And I guess, you know, that's kind of kickstarted. Uh, you know, I couldn't be a lawyer. I was very shy. I ended up forgetting my lines at a debate competition, inter-school debate competition. I became more introvert. Uh, I would shy away from speaking. And so of course, I think, you know, I was kind of like, okay, that's the only career choice that probably you will earn well. And hence I started in tech. So you did end up living in San Francisco for a while. Yes. So how was that? You know, your childhood dream of being in Silicon <laughs> Valley realized. It was wonderful. I, I think, you know, when we first landed there, at first it was just awe, like, is it really happening? It was this, this was a dream for both my husband uh, and myself. I don't know who had this dream earlier in their life. We've never had this conversation uh, till date, but it was, it was an awe. Uh, you know, there is this museum, uh, the computer museum in SF as well. And we went there and it was just like, I was like, gee, it's so freaking awesome. Like everything that I studied in school, I can see it. I wish I had the opportunity to see when I was studying about it, maybe I would have kind of really gotten more interested and I would learn. I guess I still miss the people, the energy. I used to work at Atlassian, which is really, really amazing. I've, I've been very much influenced by that company, by my manager there. Um, they've been really, really supportive of us as we've gone through a lot of struggles with Tanisha's birth and our move back to Vancouver. I miss, I miss all of that. Truly believe we would have continued living there had we not had to kind of make some personal kind of very hard decisions to return back. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those most memorable moments. I think something that I don't like about uh, the Bay Area is the commute, because again, I think Vancouver spoiled us, you know, just walking everywhere uh, and not worrying about the car and an SF even to go to a park, we had to worry about taking the car. So I think that part I don't miss. But other than that, I think the energy, the entrepreneurship, so I think support each other, that ecosystem, it's like a true kind of a community. And even now in PM Dojo, like majority of the participants, the mentors, they all come from the Valley. And it's been amazing. It's been really, really amazing. Do you, do you think Silicon Valley will be what it is, um, at least what it was before COVID? With so many companies now moving out, so many companies having this option of work from home, right, permanently. A lot of companies have come out, especially tech companies. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's going to change the whole dynamic? You kind of feed off of each other's energy. Your mentors who are primarily your managers sometimes also kind of guide you. And that in-person interaction, you know, what do you think is going to be that impact? <laughs> All this work from home permanent option. Oh. It's, it's a really, really interesting question, Divya. It is going to change. I mean, it's already changed. I don't even think that a lot of people, a lot of employees would actually like it if companies make it mandatory for them to go, but go to work, right? I mean, some of the polls are already showing that. You know, I think for me, when I look at this more than the physical presence, I think a lot of it has to do with the mindset, 
of the people. I'll give some examples, right? The notion of coming from abundance mentality versus coming from a scarcity mentality. Maybe that will over time change as people are interacting less, perhaps, I don't know. I think that 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 interaction is again so biological for us as humans, right? Like I mean we we are part of, you know, like we live in community. We've always lived in community, but for me, I think the valley kind of represents more the mindset with which people approach. And so I think because there are so many opportunities and there've always been so many opportunities there, for most part, perhaps feel like it's okay if there is someone else who's trying to do something similar uh, to what I'm doing, you know, maybe if we kind of help and collaborate each other, maybe we're going to make a bigger impact. Versus people, I guess, who come from the mentality of scarcity, where there are very few opportunities. And so you got to kind of take it and come ahead of someone else. I think for me, I think that's that's the big, big, big mindset kind of a difference that I find. Is it going to change? I would think that over time it will change. I think a lot of people are also dispersing themselves from the core valley and moving to different parts of the world. I hope that the entire world or maybe there are a lot more pockets like the Valley with this great brain power. I mean, at the end of the day, if I think about tech, tech is such an enabler that I don't think the physical presence is going to be very, very important for it. As long as I guess we can take that kind of approach to innovation and how we do things and how we work with people and spread it around and try to make a bigger change and bigger impact happen in this world. So in terms of mentors, did you ever seek out mentors or was that more of a natural process? I always heard we need mentors <laughs> and I always heard and I was always told uh, in whatever program, like any leadership program that I went, like even in school, uh, you know, we would be paired with mentors and our mentors would be uh, some of the students who were maybe three, three grades, five grades, higher than us, right? So I knew the word mentor and mentee from the time I was little. I didn't understand the importance of it though, uh, until much later in my life. When I came into the workplace, you know, it was so ingrained, I need to find a mentor because without a mentor, my professional life is doomed. Like I'll never be able to succeed. But I think the way I approached mentorship was really, really twisted and wrong. When I was looking at mentors in the workplace, yes, I was seeking them. But because of my introvert nature, I was really shy in, in going and approaching uh, leaders that I felt like perhaps they would be a good fit or I would learn from them. And so I didn't know how to pitch. I would shy away from pitching. I also didn't know how I need to talk about myself to make the other person like a mentor really interested in mentoring me. So I would get a lot of no's. Um, and then over time, as I joined, you know, this leadership program, women's leadership program, uh, and all of that, we all talked about mentors, we got a little script that we could adapt. And so I would start using that some successful and successful in a sense that I was able to make the connection happen. But a lot of those mentorship relationships were very, very transactional. So, you know, and reactive. So I would meet, and I'm not saying that I'm not thankful or grateful. They all played an instrumental role, but most of them didn't translate into a mentor becoming an advocate for me. Uh, so there's a big difference, right? Like I would go with a question, they would answer, they would really help me share with that perspective. But if there were opportunities, they, those opportunities and I didn't link up which is what I was really hoping mentorship to open doors career from a career standpoint. 
And then I kind of started meeting people, you know, this event, that event, and just kind of casually talking. And I didn't realize, I never asked them to be my mentors. But what I ended up finding was that a couple of those people were people that I would naturally reach out informally, or they would reach out to me informally, and we would just have a very fruitful conversation. I would learn from them, they would learn from me, and we actually started advocating. Uh, you know, if we did find opportunities. And that is what kind of really became the cornerstone later part of my my professional life, these informal mentors without really using the word mentorship. One mentor who has been instrumental in my life has been my manager at Atlassian. And even though I didn't seek to her like you, can you be my mentor? She's been one person again, who was my advocate as a manager, but also even after I left Atlassian to this date is like a very, very dear and close friend. Um, and so I, I, I guess that would be one person that I really respect and look, look up to. Along the way, did you have any challenges just because you were a woman? Yes. Even though that time I felt like all of this was being done intentionally. I don't know, looking back, if all of those were intentional, intentional. I guess a lot of it, again, comes back to, I think, how we see the world. I would hear things like, do you really, should you really take on the role of, like, should you really kind of accept that promotion, right? Like, you have a little little kid at home. Do you want to just miss out on all of that? Do you want to be a good mom or do you want to just pursue your career? Did it create challenges? Well, it made me so guilty <laughs> that I started second-guessing everything, and I, yes, I did start second guessing whether I should take on the role or the promotion. Um, So it was more around, I would say, the comments more than I would say those typical challenges. You know, I have also heard, well, do you really want to give the offer to that particular individual that you want to hire? You know, she's been married for X years. She's going to start thinking about having kids. Do you really want to give an offer? I was asked that question. And I said, yes, well, you know, in Canada, our mat leave is 18 months. You're going to lose her for 18 months. What are they going to do again? Start hiring. I've heard these things, you know, and uh, yes, it's made me angry. Beyond that, I've kind of, I think, told myself, going to hear these things. These things are going to happen, you know, when my, when my rational brain kicks in. I think at that point, I'm like really angry and I want to, I come and talk to my husband or you know, my confidence and things like that. But it, it has been challenging. But I guess a lot of these comments that come, they, I think, also feed into the negative talk, right? The imposter syndrome and all of that confidence kind of a thing that kind of shatters and you don't even want to try. You don't even want to try a lot of these things. You also had some challenges um, when your son was very young with him and his health. How did you manage all of that? I think when we were facing those challenges as, as a family, at that point, we were not thinking about ourselves. I was not thinking about myself. I mean, there was no time to think about myself. I gave birth and immediately after giving birth, I headed into the ICU, uh, not even in the wheelchair. I was walking and like, it was insane. Um, But I wanted to see our newborn because I didn't get to see him. I just touched him barely after he was born. But at that point, you know, when you see a newborn uh, and I had no experience with babies, He's, uh, he's our only one, our first one, only one. I think all the energy and everything that we were thinking, it went into a survival mode for him. So for Tanish, we wanted to do everything possible 
to ensure that he was surviving. And so there wasn't, you know, nothing of like taking care of yourself. I was sleeping on the floor in the ICU and still changing his diapers, looking at him, trying to feed him, trying to make sure that the hospital was not forcing him into formula. I was still pumping. And so it, it was the adrenal that kicked in and I was kind of trying to make him live. That was what we did. And we did that for quite some time. We didn't talk much about ourselves, like my husband and I, you know, like, how are you doing? Do you need help? You know, like nothing. I mean, those conversations didn't come. Everything was about what does Tanish need, right? Who do we need to talk to now? And yes, our family was there. Parents were there. We were trying not to tell all of the details to our parents because they would be worried back in India. My mom did come for the birth. And so she did see but she herself was kind of, I think, dealing with rationalizing a lot of these things that I don't think we ever sat down as a family to talk. So earlier on, it was a very much survival mode, not thinking, not doing. Over time, towards the end of my mat leave, and I took a little bit of an extended mat leave even in the U.S., I started finding myself, when I saw Tanish was getting better, I started kind of resorting to watching television. And so if you were to ask what worked, I would say nonsense television, reality TV, the Kardashians did help <laughs> to just put things in perspective while someone's world was ending because they had a slightly different nail paint color. And here we were dealing with life-threatening, uh, you know, situations. I think it puts things in perspective. Of course, when I started waiting for that show, I realized that perhaps it's been too long of a mat leave and I need to start uh, exercising my intellectual muscles because I would become like them and that reality would be embarrassing and challenging. So I guess, yes, the Kardashians did help or any kind of nonsense television to just take my mind away talking with some of the people that I could. Um, so finding those communities, not getting under the pressure that I need to talk and share everything, but just kind of knowing that we weren't alone. That helped a little bit, but both my husband and I are introverts. And so of course that made uh, things a little bit challenging where we were not sharing completely out in the open. Later on, you know, when we returned, I think I was very much determined because I was so tired and I think mentally and emotionally so exhausted with everything that was happening in the U.S. Uh, around the health and the business of health and how this health kind of system, the medical system works. I also kind of made, I think, a very, 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 very deliberate decision that we needed to leave the U.S. for my own mental sanity because everything in the U.S. were those gentle reminders. And at that point, it was a very hard decision. Well, should you leave a company that you absolutely love, culture that you absolutely love? Should we go back? What's going to happen in Vancouver? Like, are you going to go back to work or are you going to stay at home? If you go to work, will we have to find a nanny? That means that someone else, a stranger, you'll have to trust your baby. And for me, I think at that point, I said, we're going to think about what's next later. Right now, we need to leave the US. And so it was very much like not thinking too much into the future, which is very uncomfortable for me. A lot of people who know me say it's almost like I play chess <laughs> with my life playing kind of two, three steps ahead, thinking about what others are going to do. And then, you know, not from a manipulative way, but just kind of thinking it that way. So it was very challenging. So again, another deliberate decision about living at the moment and doing whatever possible to make sure that mentally I was fine. Even though I didn't understand, I think, Divya, what was my condition back then, I really didn't realize. But I knew that I needed to leave the US. And so we did that. I think heading back to work did help a little bit. 
uh, because had I made my decision to continue staying at home, I would have continued to live in the past, which I still did even at work, but even to find that little bit of time away to do something that I am deeply passionate about that fuels me was something that helped me. But then it also became the reason that I started putting myself into work mode too much just to escape from the reality. So it kind of backfired as well, uh, which kind of resulted in my the shutdown that happened in 2019. Looking back, what would you do differently? Professionally, what I would absolutely do differently is that for the longest period of time, I, I was chasing a lot of the materialistic things that come with having a career. Um, so I was chasing titles. I was chasing the corporate ladder dream. I wanted to shut down the naysayers that I cannot be leading a business. And I wanted to be at the top. I wanted to shatter the glass ceiling, you know, all of these articles that we read about, you know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be that woman. I wanted to be that person, not a woman. I wanted to be that person who's able to do that. I wanted to do things that, yes, having a kid, having gone through a lot of those things, and yet, like, I wanted to be this role model really bad. I wanted to be this role model for my son. I wanted to be as strong as my son. So I changed a lot of that, and I've now realized, hopefully the wiser me, that not all promotions are right. So maybe when those promotions were coming, I should have thought about it even from my personal side of things. Am I ready emotionally for a promotion? Should I be taking it? And yes, I can say no in a very tactful and strategic way that doesn't kind of downplay my future prospects. Um, I shouldn't have kind of blindly said yes, just because of all of this glamour that is associated with the promotion. Personally, I would have done things very differently to the point where um, when we did come to know that our little one will be needing a surgery, we came to know this uh, when I was 19 weeks pregnant, um, I should have been really, really determined, like usually been most of my life and said we should return back to Canada, just given that the health system and the medical system here is very, very different. I'm not saying the US medical health system is, is really bad, but that particular, you know, we, we talk a lot about the mom's instinct. And there are these little things that we see that just kind of, and I still remember when we were having that conversation with the surgeon, I just looked at his hands and his fingers were big, huge. In my mind, I was just visualizing how is he ever going to operate on that tiny heart that is the size of a walnut? And of course, my husband said, you know, you have robots and all of that. He's not going to be doing it with his own hands. But I was like, I don't know. I don't like his hands. I don't want him touching my son's heart. And that was the instinct, you know, and I've listened to my instincts all of the times and we have the choice of returning back. I could travel. We could have done all of that. Uh, again, hindsight is twenty twenty, but that would be a big thing. I think when we were thinking of having a kid, we should have definitely not postponed it for that long. We postponed it for way too long. Of course, that increases risks and other, other kind of things. Maybe I would have had more mental energy to deal with a lot of the stuff that the life was throwing at us maybe back then. I think those would be some of the things that I would probably do things differently. I would have probably tried the entrepreneurship route much earlier. Uh, and I've wanted to do that numerous times, but I've just given it up because financial security was something that was more important. We all have our own criteria, right, of what success means to us. 
what we want to achieve and what would make us happy. You could grow up, you're with experience, you realize things change all the time and your criteria changes as well. You know, like I think if I may just add one thing, Divya, I was doing things for others, not for myself. And so if you were to ask me that question, what would I do things differently, both personally and professionally, I would actually start prioritizing myself. So I was trying to prove all of those things. I can do it. I can reach the top. It wasn't for myself. I knew what I could do. I, you know, I've been a top kind of a performer throughout my life. I've done very well education-wise as well. And so I know I can do it, but I was doing that just for the naysayers and all of these people around me, right? Having kids and, you know, it was, again, the societal norm, right? I'm not saying I'm not happy. I'm very happy and content being a mom, but yes, we kind of got into the pressure to conform. And so if I had to do it again, and this is what I tell a lot of people is that do it for yourself, like really think hard what you want and only do it when you're ready, uh, emotionally, mentally, and physically. So any closing comments? You know, uh, there is a practical side of things and then there is all these other worldly pressures or all of these different things that you're gonna, we're gonna hear from people, right? Because everyone seems to have an opinion and you can't do anything about it. Although they might be interesting, they're very irrelevant uh, for our lives is what I've learned. But we all kind of listen to all of these different comments, right? Take the time to really kind of reflect on what is it that we want and then make a decision. The world's not gonna come to an end or our professional life is not gonna come to an end if we don't accept a promotion or we don't take on that one extra project just because maybe during these, um, you know, this time and maybe we don't have a childcare at home. And right, I'm just kind of giving an example, right? Like the world doesn't end that way. If you put your heart and mind into something, you can of course kind of achieve a lot of the different things, but try to live your life using the terms that you define, not what the society defines for us and for you. And connect with people, tell your story. It can be hard, but at, at some time you never know who it inspires or who it sparks a little bit of a thought and they might come and share their story. We need to normalize a lot of these taboo things that we have in our lives, right? Whether it is burnout, whether it's PTSD, whether it is um, you know, dealing with our own demons and all of this. And it's about how we kind of help each other to lift up and, and rise high because truly then we can make an impact. Vaski, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your experiences and your journey with us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Divya, for having me.